Hello everyone, and welcome to the File Room Podcast, a podcast about the X-Files. That is also a desperate attempt to reconnect a friendship across the Atlantic. I'm Edwin Davis. And I'm Michaela Livingston-Banks. If you're new to the X-Files or watching it for the tenth time, watch along with us while we explore the dark corners of the American psyche. Via a TV show from the 90s. So, Michaela, uh, we're recording this a couple of days after Christmas. Obviously, people will be hearing this at a later date, which is, uh, now that I say it, is kind of true of all podcasts, uh, except ones that are recorded live, I guess. Um, everyone hears. Is that, it's like that Mitch Hedberg joke about like, how every photograph is a picture of you when you were younger. Um, yeah, so uh, how has your Christmas been? It's, it's by way of, like, before I talk myself into a corridor, <laughs> into, a, into a labyrinth, a mental labyrinth, how has your Christmas been? <laughs> My Christmas has been very relaxing and filled with uh, ridiculous amounts of food, mm. um, but in a very awesome way. Um, how about you? Yeah, it's been very nice. I have been uh, off work since the 23rd. I had to be on call for my job on the 23rd. But since then, I've not had to work at all, which is a great rarity for me usually over Christmas break I'm on call a lot more so uh, yeah it has been uh, a lovely at this point six days of not doing anything uh, and that is quite nice again that's not something I tend to find time to do because usually if I'm taking time off it's like you know flying back to the UK to see people or like mm. to being being like massively busy so um, actually taking the time to think okay I'm gonna actually kind of take time to relax uh, has been quite nice although as is always the case i have been i've completely failed to read any of the books i brought with me to my parents house <laughs> to read i always feel like oh yeah i'm gonna have like this stretch of uninterrupted time in which i can read like three or four books and it's just never it never happens it never happens because so you suddenly think oh yeah like they like want to go out and do things and like see me because they love me or whatever um whereas um as opposed to just leaving me alone to read my, you know, Hunter S. Thompson book about the 1972 presidential mm. election or whatever. Um, but no, it's been very nice. It's been a very nice holiday so far. That's good. That's good. Um, I also didn't manage to read any of the book that I took with me. It's just blasted family and people wanting to, like, hang mm. out and talk, isn't it? You don't get a second to yourself to uh, to sit and read and whatnot. But that's what christmas is about so it's yeah not complaining i've got plenty mm-hmm. of time to read books back home yeah you've got 51 weeks the rest of the year to complain and read books <laughs> yeah yeah i did uh, i did manage to watch an episode this episode in fact through on my mobile um whilst people were busy doing something else i'm not sure probably <laughs> probably me like hiding away from having to do any cleaning <laughs> clearing up of any of the mess after dinner or whatever but yeah i did i did manage to watch the episode on my phone mm, yeah well that that's kind of like a nice new excuse to watch the x-files usually you'd just be like oh yeah and then if you were doing it it's antisocial but now it's content so you know it's... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you you have to be allowed to do it Exactly, exactly. I've got important TV watching to do. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's let's get into it. So this week's episode, we are talking about Squeeze, probably one of the most famous episodes of The X-Files, uh, and ar- arguably one of the most important. We'll get into why in a minute. Um, quick synopsis. Uh, Scully is having a meal with a former colleague of hers called Tom Colton, played by Donald Logue, who asks her for help investigating a series of murders that have been taking place in Baltimore, which have a similar MO, which is that people seem to be dying in secured locations and their livers are missing. And because Scully obviously deals with unusual cases, thanks to her work with the X-Files, she and Mulder are brought in to investigate and they very quickly um, determined that these killings are all being done by the same person. And that person is apparently over a hundred years old. And, via you know investigating fingerprints and things like that which uh is is hilarious when you see how long those fingerprints are uh <laughs> they eventually come to the realization that the killer is someone called eugene tombs who um 
yeah, I think it's fair to say probably one of the most memorable Monster of the Week characters mm-hmm. in, in all of the X-Files. And not just because the actor is creepy <laughs> as hell. Yeah, I wondered when we were going to get to the fact that... <laughs> Do you know what? I've, I've seen him in other things. I can't think what now, but I remember seeing him in other things and just saying to, to John, just like, does this guy play anything but creepy? Mm. Like, he's just he just is creepy. Um, admittedly, I did go have a quick Wikipedia look and I'm just going to say I feel like his real life is just as creepy as his screen life. Okay, maybe not as creepy, but like, yeah, kind of creepy. Yeah, the the, the actual question, Doug Anthony Hutchinson, who, yeah, his, his MO, particularly post playing Tombs, was definitely people get cast him because they need someone to be creepy. I think mm. the... Maybe the big exception to that is he plays the character of Horace Goodspeed in Lost. He's the guy who runs the Dharma Initiative in the yes. 60s, who yeah. is ki- kind of one of the nicer characters in Lost. Like, he's not overtly creepy, but obviously he's part of a creepy organisation. So. Yeah. Um, and there's probably a sense there. They're casting him slightly against type and being like, oh, he's not like the creepiest person in this show, but because so many but people think of him as But you're expecting him to be creepy. I, yeah. Maybe that's the point. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Um, but yeah, uh, so yeah, Tombs is whole deal. And it's, this is kind of appropriate that we're talking about this because at one point we do see him go down a chimney. So it is, of course, um, fitting for the season. And uh, certainly... <laughs> does make me concerned about how Santa is getting into people's houses if he is discombobulating in order to do so. Well, and he must be. He mm. must be. Some of those chimneys are very tight. So, right? Yeah. Um, he is a character who, as is it, as we've realised over the course of the episode, he is um, a character who... A, a creature who awakens every 30 years in order to hunt and kill people for their livers and then the bile from that sustains him for 30 years of hibernation uh certainly did not make the episode any less scary to think oh this episode came out 30 years ago cool yeah. <laughs> it's about time for him to wake up again yeah, yeah. Um, well yeah and you know there's the line in there where the next time if they don't catch him this time the next time will be 2023 and mm-hmm, i think Mul- mm-hmm. Mulder makes a comment about how by then um scully will be director of the bureau and like they specifically say 2023 and i was like oh okay then (laughs) well what do you think i think what we have to do is track eugene tombs there's four down and one to go this year if we don't get them right now the next chance we're going to get is in uh 2023 and you're going to be head of the bureau by then um and he is you know he as we said like he is his his kind of unique ability is that he can kind of dislocate and squeeze as the title says he can squeeze his body into any tiny space so he's able to get into these like highly secured um, office buildings because try as you might like basically every room has an air vent every room has like Mm -hmm. some small space that he can um, squeeze through I was reading up about the production of the episode and I thought it was it was cool that the inspiration for this basically came from uh, James Wong and Glenn Morgan, who wrote the episode. This is the first episode of the series to not be written by Chris Carter, mm. um, and they're very important figures in the early series of the early seasons of the X Files. Mm-hmm. Um, they were kind of sitting around one day trying to think of ideas, and they just like looked up at a vent and just like, wouldn't it be creepy if someone was trying to like squeeze through that vent or something like that? And I, I always love when sort of an iconic villain or monster in in anything but particularly the x-files you know could come from something that's so small and so simple Mm -hmm. because it really does come from what feels like a very um just like a common a a common thing like so many people live in places that have air vents or have Mm -hmm. you know chimneys and things like that so the idea of turning that into something horrifying um is so so simple but so effective yeah and that's i think that's a mark of uh, a couple of really great writers is to take something so simple and just make it so horrific because mm. <laughs> it is definitely the thing of nightmares like I was thinking back on this and it reminded me how one of the sort of recurring dreams that I used to have as a kid and a teenager being chased by some crazed animal or something but it being able to like 
slide under impossibly tight things under doors. I'm sure mm. actually the thing that probably sparked that is videos of cats going through tiny spaces under doors. I'm sure mm. I've seen this. Um, but yeah, it would be anything. Cats, lobsters, all sorts slivering through you know like upvc doors it's not even just a crack in a door it's like there is no space and yet somehow they would manage to like squeeze through yeah um but yeah i it's i probably i don't think i saw this episode when i was super 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 young um because i don't think i watched it when it first came out i think my first viewing of it would have been you know how like before the DVDs of whole seasons, like with the X-Files, you'd get like two, three episode sets on a VHS tape? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I had this one um, and also the um, Abduction, the Dwayne Barry story, which comes a bit later. But yeah, so like I have seen this episode like a gazillion times, but um, I don't think it triggered those dreams. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. No, that came into this. your life later. Yes, yes, yes. But I have, I feel like watching this episode, it was just so, so familiar, even though, you know, last time I watched the X-Files through was like, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, but it's just so familiar. Yeah, I think there are so many really iconic images uh, for this episode. We, we mentioned earlier, tools going down the chimney to get yeah. into the second victim i guess fourth victim overall but second that we see get killed in the episode where mm-hmm. you know you know he, his head is in the chimney and then um they hired like a contortionist to get the body right of the mm. arm seeming to dislocate uh his hand coming out of the vent when he's uh, in scully's home later on his red eyes mm-hmm. the, there's just so many like really striking images and i think what's really amazing about this because i i always i'm always surprised that like this was the third episode of the x-files mm. because it's such an iconic one yeah it sets so much of the template for the monster of the week format yeah um but that also it's like tombs is is an original creation like it, it's not like you know they did aliens and then mm-hmm. they did like something more familiar like werewolves and vampires and stuff it's like yeah they did two episodes about aliens and then the third one is like this entirely new really upsetting <laughs> kind of monster that they came yeah. up with um but yeah it's 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 really terrific um i think at the start i mentioned that this i think also is one of the most important episodes of the x-files and i think a large part of that is because it's the first monster of the week episode um mm-hmm. i was reading in the book monsters of the week by zach Candlin and uh, emily st james that um james wong said that when they went in after like you know they'd filmed out the writer's room and they were talking to chris carter of like why is this show going to be the first one of the first questions they had was is it going to be aliens every week mm. and initially chris carter's answer was yes like mm. he he thought that aliens were going to be like the central tenor of the show and that's kind of been the focus on it mm-hmm. but then at some point fairly early on he that he changed his mind i think because he realized how limiting that was yeah and I think squeeze both conceptually and also in actuality and like how successful an episode of, of television it is gave them such license to try as many different things as possible and really freed them up from being like, okay, we don't have to just be the alien show. We can, we can try a bunch of stuff and, and see what works. And it did. Mm. Triggering uh, nightmares and people all around the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, to go back uh, also, I think the, the, the filmmaking in this episode is really good. I, when I was watching it, I was really struck by um, the first murder um, in the in the opening uh, scene of the episode where, um, you know, this guy goes into this heavily fortified office mm-hmm. and, you know, he locks the door and then you see the screw unscrewing on his vent uh, and falling out. And then the killing happens off screen, but you do see, like, his bloody body like Mm -hmm. um reflected and the camera pans across and then eventually ends on the screw on the vent going back in it's just all like i think really really impressive um very subtle horror filmmaking in that it it knows that you can't really show a lot of the stuff they would maybe want to if they had more money and more budget but they can do a lot through suggestion yeah super super thoughtful really well made in that sense um Mm. and i think it really struck me 
as well about how this is a really important episode for Mulder and Scully's relationship Mm. because you know she's basically on multiple occasions throughout is kind of pitted again or you know potentially pitted against Mulder because like people are making fun of him and his ideas and stuff like that and they're like come and work with us and ultimately she's like nah screw you guys I'm gonna stick with this guy um I'm letting him go you coming Tom, I want to thank you for letting me put in some time with the VCS. But I am officially assigned to the X-Files. I'll see what I can do about that. Tom, I can look out for myself. You said Mulder was out there. That guy's insane. So, like, I guess that's the first time you see her kind of committing to Mulder and his ways. Mm. Um, Already, three episodes in, she's like, I'm in. Yeah, I think it it is really great to see her take that on like a, a, a personal stand, but also it, I think the episode does a really good job of really laying out like the professional stakes for mm-hmm. her because you can tell even from that opening scene with um Colton where you know they're kind of like talking and she's uh, she's like a little bit defensive, but obviously she's talking to someone she's friends with, so she can't like really mount like a full for hard a full throated defense like mm-hmm. there is you do get this sense that he's taught he he and everyone in else in the fbi think of the x-files as you know this complete dead end like it's it that, that Mulder, you know he may be a brilliant agent but he's wasting his time like on these weirdo cases that no one yeah. cares about and that uh, that's where she's going to end up uh if she follows him along and so uh i think it does a really really good job of laying out really what the stakes are for Scully in siding with Mulder, which is obviously if she left the X-Files or, or whatever, or she kind of like finished her report and got it shut down, um, you know, it would be great for her advancement. Not only would it like, you know, like, but it would also destroy her friendship. And that if she, you know, sides with Mulder and stays around, like there is a real sense that she's just going to be locked in this basement in the bottom of the head- headquarters for the rest of her career. Um, so yeah, so it does feel very impactful that she's like, no, like he he's right about all of the absolutely unchanged shit that's yeah. happening with this guy. But to be fair, like it's so Colton is presented as like he's he's the 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 hot new thing who's on mm. a fast track up the career ladder, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and and she essentially chooses Scully over Mulder, but in fairness. That dude was a douchebag. Yeah. <laughs> he was so mean. Um, bless him. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Also, like, Donald Logue, he's, he's great. He's, he's like a really fun character actor who's in lots of things. I mainly know him from the TV show Terriers, which only got one season and was unceremoniously cancelled, but mm. he was fantastic in. Uh, and he's also the arsehole vampire in Blade who's like, I mean, there's lots of arsehole vampires in Blade, but he's like, the, <laughs> he's the biggest douchebag um, vampire just, in the first Blade. <laughs> I think, yeah, and he's got one of them faces where I'm I'm sure I've seen him in other things, but yeah. I just can't think what. But yeah, he, he's very good at that kind of, like, like we saying, like, he's douchebag arsehole. Like, he just, he just radiates a smarminess to him. He really um, does. And so it's extra, extra good when at the end he gets kind of taken down because he's kind of overstepped his mark with trying to shut down their stakeout and all of that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, it's always yeah. nice when that happens. I, I also really like their kind of, like, when him and Scully at the start of the episode are having their like dinner and they're catching up, whatever, how they're talking about someone else who got advanced and his his way of describing it is he like looked into the World Trade Center bombings <laughs> and just kind of like has he has that real air of like you know the the kind of gallows sense of humor that I think you get in a lot of those kind of um, in a lot of those those kind of professions, you know, police doctors and things like that. But the way he says it really does kind of make him think like, man, I wish I'd been working when dozens of people died. <laughs> yeah. Well, really and uh, of course, you know, at, at one point, I think where I think it was further on in the episode where 
uh, Mulder and Scully show up at a crime scene of one of the murders and he's like I only want you know like my authorized agents here or something like that and she's like no we get to be here too and he I think he asks like whose side are you on anyway and mm. Scully's just like well the victims obviously <laughs> but uh, it's just uh, I yeah you'd like to think that people when they're doing really well are doing so because they're on the side of truth and justice and whatever else FBI agents um, are driven by but also can definitely accept that despite um, there being high stakes people might just want to climb their way up the greasy career pole Mm. yeah definitely and that someone like Mulder who has like an intense interest in something that is not considered important Mm -hmm. um it would be just like left to the side even if you know he's he's right (laughs) as as he often is um although I think this episode does give both uh Mulder and Scully um a chance to be right as regards tombs because obviously he kind of like pieces together all of the physical evidence where you know mm-hmm. he finds the elongated um uh, f- uh thumbprint he or fingerprint he finds like the connection or he establishes the connection to previous murders that are taking place like 30 60 and 90 years before but then she is the one who correctly profiles that he probably will return to the scene of the crime mm-hmm. um if uh, he's not able to kind of get another murder in and um i quite like that because like it would be so easy to kind of paint Mulder's kind of obsession with the fantastical and the kind of counterintuitive as always in the right and then her focus on the psychological as being kind of the thing that oh that's conventional so this is not going to be right as often so it's quite nice they both get a win in this episode yeah also, I think that it, there's some good... We, we often talk about Scully being the doubter, you know. Mm. I, I feel like the episode does a good job of, like, siding with her in how doubtful she is. Because when Mulder is laying out the evidence for, you know, what he thinks has happened, it truly does sound like the ramblings of a madman. Well, what then? That, that, that this is the work of a hundred-year-old serial killer who's capable of overpowering a healthy six-foot-two businessman? And he should stick out in a crowd with ten-inch fingers. Um, so so when she's doubting it, you kind of think, yeah, I mean, even as someone who's watching this episode for the like fourth or fifth time um, and knowing all the, everything that's going on with tombs, I think, yeah, the, it, it does seem a bit of a, a stretch, um, shall we say. Um, <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> to, to leap to, oh, yeah, this is a, this is a, a man who's hundreds of years old and uh, stretches. <laughs> yeah. The sort it I was sort of thinking on this on like you know what even could you think are the plausible explanations in the mm. same way that a plausible explanation for say UFOs is um experimental military aircraft. Okay, yeah. so what's 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 the plausible explanation for someone who apparently is more than a hundred years old and also can stretch? And it's just like there is none. <laughs> there is none. <laughs> like, well, you know, people live to over a hundred, but not like they're not active and well and working and murdering, you know, business people and whatnot. Um, Able to tear a liver out with their hands. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, if there was any suggestion that eating liver would be the thing that would keep you young, then I'm sure all the billionaire CEOs would. Uh, be on that and we should all be worried us mm, poor folk yeah. for our livers um that's probably not the case um and the anyway the closest thing i could come to in thinking about plausible explanations for the stretching um is that a stretch armstrong doll got brought to, no i'm joking uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be a fun episode there's a set of conditions um under the name Ehlers Danlos syndrome, and it's it's a kind of um, condition that affects connective tissue and things like that. And one of the variations of this is leads to hypermobility and th- amongst other things as well. Um, you know, it's a serious condition. But so a lot of a lot of contortionists, but not all contortionists have this condition. It means having stretchier skin, having hypermobile joints, and things like that. 
obviously what it doesn't mean is that your bones can stretch and grow on demand, which, mm-hmm. you know, we we see Tombs as he's going, you know, that, that scene you mentioned about him going through the, the chimney stack, um, like choosing to dislocate his shoulder and stretch down but you you also see him from the other end reaching towards essentially the camera and Mm. and all of him is stretching so yeah essentially it's suggesting that like his bones and, and also the fingerprint is really long so it suggests that his bones can also stretch on demand and yet still be rigid enough to keep him upright and in yeah. the structure of a human rather than like an octopus or a jellyfish or something. Um, so yeah, it's just completely and utterly fantastical. Um, and I would love, I, I know um, you mentioned that the writers uh, kind of just had this thought like, oh, what if someone could squeeze out, of, a monster could squeeze out of a, duct or whatever but i'd really love to know if they'd seen an advert for stretch armstrong (laughs) and that's what got them um did you ever have one of those toys as a kid i did have a stretch armstrong as a kid yes uh i seem to i seem to remember not getting a lot of use out of it because like the adverts always made it seem like super fun it's like oh man he can stretch so much and then um the elasticity disappears um somewhat quickly is my main memory of it yeah so i never had one of these and like i remember the adverts looking super fun and awesome and so obviously i wanted one i never got Mm. one though i don't think my brother neither me or my brother had one um but you know as an adult thinking back on this i'm just like okay so the doll stretches then what? Like, how do you play with that? Am I just being, like, a really unimaginative adult that I can't think how you would play with that toy? Like, you'd have a stre- you'd stretch out and, like, have a tug war, maybe? Like, what, mm. what do you do with it? I-, I guess you would, like, invent scenarios where he would have to... Because it- it's, like, a superhero sort of thing, right? So I right. guess, you know, I don't know, like, someone's on the other side of a ravine and you have to, like, stretch him so he, like, leaps himself across that way but mainly it is yeah like just tug of war or just being like oh wow it's cool how it stretches a lot and then it sort of returns back to how it was sort of (laughs) yeah uh, at a certain point it does not do that um yeah i was thinking about this with like slinkies recently Mm. as well like slinkies had a big comeback in the early 90s because they were able to make them out of plastic and make them like day glow and things like that and Mm -hmm. just thinking like yeah once you've sent it down like a really big staircase there's not a huge amount of of replay value to a slinky especially because sometimes it would like stop after like three steps and uh, a lot of the fun would would go out of it um i remember the pub that my parents ran at that point when i got a slinky which was in like early 90s had like a really really tall staircase to get up to the flat and that was like i remember sending it all the way down once and just being really excited and then immediately just thinking oh god i've got to go down all the stairs to pick it back up now and run all the way back up to do it again and i think that was probably the last time i played with slinkies because i just thought i've got one really good one out of it and Mm -hmm. that's all i need to do it was an art it was an art to get a slinky Mm. to actually go all the way down um a flight of stairs so i'm not sure i'm not i'm not even sure i managed to get it to go down a whole time but Feels like with you for them to come back, like the the, the nostalgia cycle. That at some point, well, Slinkies are gonna have a big comeback. I can feel it right now. That's my that's my one prediction for twenty twenty four. Slinkies make a comeback. Surely Slinkies never went away. Come on, like you can always find them somewhere. Yeah, usually unused in the back of people's drawers. Well, and so let's see if a, a, a Stretch Armstrong comes back. Mm. Some of the other imagery that I thought was really striking from this episode in terms of horror, because I think, you know, X-Files is, is broadly thought of as a horror series, but not every episode is, is horrific. I, I like the first two had like, were kind of suspenseful, but there wasn't much in the way of like real horror stuff. I think this episode is the first time they really play in that sandbox. The the one that really got me this time is after they've found Toombs's nest and they don't think he's there. They like 
walk towards the camera and then you see Toombs's hand come down mm-hmm. and grab um, Scully's locket. That really freaked me out this time because it's it there's, they do such a good job of um, obscuring the fact that there's anything that you should be afraid of. So then suddenly seeing this hand come out from nowhere and thinking, oh no, he's got Scully's he's got Scully's locket. Scully's in danger. Um, yeah, that that really got me this time. Though I did laugh that, you know, when they find this doorway down into the cellar behind a mattress mm-hmm. and Mulder's just like, oh, where does it go? And Scully's like, I'll go down. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like if you were, I mean, obviously they're FBI agents, they're brave. Unlike me, if I was in that situation and there was some dark, dank apartment with a hole in a wall down to a cellar, I would not be the person to be like i'll go down first into the dark cellar because that is the start of every horror movie Mm. and even if you don't buy the fantastical explanation you still are chasing someone who's killed at least four people (laughs) exactly i'm always i always i always find this um it happens a lot in the x-files but you know all sorts of movies and tvs where some like very determined police officer fbi agent whoever is is like after someone and like rather than waiting for like backup or whatever they'll just like go into the dark scary place where the murderer or monster or whatever is and Mm. i'm just like okay this is gonna go real badly for you (laughs) (laughs) and it usually does yep but then Um, i wouldn't make a good police officer so yeah, it's not the it's not the profession you decided to pursue. So no, it's not a situation you often find yourself in. No, um, obviously working at an old university. If I was the only ever situation I'd ever be in in going into a an old room, it's not gonna involve going in with a serial killer. It'll just be an old room with creepy paintings on the wall. But that's mm. the, that's as bad as it gets in my job. Yeah, it's like, I think the creepiest situation I can ever remember getting into in that respect would probably be back when I'd have to go into the stacks at Sheffield University when I was sitting there, just because there's something mm. incredibly unsettling about the just general air vibe of the thing. It's like they're, they're deep down in the building, there's very little light. Usually you think you're alone and then you'll hear like a noise off in the distance of someone rustling paper. It's like extremely atmospheric and unsettling. Um yeah. To the extent that someone did like an uh installation there, a horror installation there this year that multiple people told me about when I was back visiting in September, which sounded very cool, where you essentially walk around the stacks carrying a tape player and you play tapes at certain oh, points yeah. which like relay a horror story. Uh, and I thought, wow, that sounds like such a fantastic use of that space because that place is like it can be quite unnerving. Yeah, I went down once, but this is why I, I, I took science, so that I didn't have to go sit in <laughs> fusty um, stacks and archives. Um, I was, I did feel real sorry for them having to do their research, looking through like a hundred years worth of like birth, death and marriage certificates on the mm. uh, microfilm thingamajiggers. Cause, yeah. Uh, and yeah, Mulder joke, not joke, says that it gives him seasickness and I'm makes him feel seasick and I wouldn't be surprised and I'm just like thank goodness these days we live in an age of like digitization and a lot of these things you can just get up on the internet type some stuff in and it's all been it's all been digitized and tagged so you can find stuff real easy like you don't have to manually sift through books or or even those awful, um, I say awful, they're still kind of cool. But, you know, the microfilm mm. things. What is the proper name for them? Microfiche? Microfiche, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that looked like it would suck. So I think you have to go through the census. I'm going to plow through this century's marriage, birth, death certificates. And Do you have any Dramamine on you by any chance? Because these things make me seasick. I always get a bit of a thrill whenever I see an old movie where microfiche is like a major part of the story because I never ever had to use one as far as I can remember. So it, it, it kind of feels like fax machines where it's like a technology that did exist in my lifetime, but by the time I would be in a situation where I'd ever need to use it, like 
other things had supplanted it. So I always think, oh man, like that seems like a cool old form of technology that yeah. <laughs> no this one is needs the anymore. only time I'm gonna get to like brag about this. Mm-hmm. But like I think I mentioned before, you know, my dad was a librarian and they had these thick because he worked in the reference department and local studies department of the of the city library. Um so yeah they had these things. Um <laughs> And I'd be like, please let me play on them. And he's like, it's not a toy. But I would get to anyway. So there's my brag. <laughs> um, I got to use these microfish things. Um, yeah, super exciting. What sort, of, what sort of stuff did you get to look at? Was it like deaths, births, marriages, that no, sort of stuff? No, I think probably it would have been, it probably was just whatever my dad had to hand. It was like, go, in the same way that I'm sure a parent would just like give their kid a tablet and be like, go sit there and be quiet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was probably that. So I don't, I think, I think it was just newspapers, like the local paper or something like that. Mm. Um. Yeah, I think the equivalent for me of a thing my parents would have me do to keep me occupied that was tied to their work is whenever they would have to do counting up the the take at the end of the night in the pubs, um, they'd just give you like a bag of pound coins to count. And just the thing is, the bags all contain 20 pound coins anyway. Like they all, that, that's why they're in a bag. So I was not doing anything helpful. They already knew there was 20 in there. But My like... parents did that too <laughs> with with because they they used to help a lot with like charities and stuff like that those cheeky little it didn't occur to me that it had already been counted and they were just keeping me busy yeah they think they think you're you think you're helping but cheeky they know that clinking the coins around will keep you entertained and they were right it certainly certainly kept me busy um and made me feel rich more money than I'd ever held in my entire life at that point. £20 coins. <laughs> you talked about this episode in terms of horror. I think it's also a very funny episode. Um, yeah. I think Mulder gets a lot of really good jokes. Um, like when he's talking, he and Scully first arrive on the uh, crime scene and they're talking about his reputation. He just kind of like quietly says, Do you think I'm spooky? And he just kind of like, clearly kind of like messing with her a little bit, which I thought was very, very funny. And then he goes on this whole thing where like, they're pretending that he thinks it might be aliens. So Mulder, what do you think? Does this look like the work of Little Green Man? Gray. Excuse me? Gray. You said green men. A reticulant skin tone is actually gray. They're notorious for their extraction of terrestrial human livers due to iron depletion in the reticulum galaxy. You can't be serious. Do you have any idea what liver and onions go for in reticulum? Excuse me. <laughs> uh, which is a very funny joke. Uh, and the one that also made me really laugh was um, when they find Toombs' nest and he's got the bile on his hand and he doesn't know what it is. And then she says, I, I think that's bile. And he like, st- holds for a second and says, how could I get this off without betraying my cool exterior? Yeah. And he just immediately starts like shaking his hand violently because he's so disgusted by it. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a good solid uh, series of gags in this episode. I think it's got the nice balance between the the dark and the light. Yeah, it was good. I enjoyed that a lot. That's see, this is why ultimately, you know, the X Files could be described as like a horror or a thriller or whatever. But I don't think of it as a scary show. Mm. I think probably just because all of the kind of um, levity that is brought through Mulder's jokes. Yeah. I mean, there are some genuinely properly meant to be funny. There are a lot of meant to be funny episodes as well. Mm. Um, But even the ones that aren't meant, the, the content itself isn't meant to be like funny. There are all of these punctuations of, of good, good gags. Yeah, and I think one thing that's quite nice about them is that they're not really, like, quippy. They all do seem to come from his character and from Mm -hmm. the relationship that he and Scully had. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, when he, like, surprises her in the um, parking garage where they're waiting to see if Toobins shows up and he, like, holds his hand up and goes, like, you wouldn't shoot an unarmed man, would you, Copper? Like, he just has, like, a a goofy sense of humour that Mm -hmm. he always seems to like playing with and it doesn't feel like they're um just kind of like shoving quips in because he's meant to be the funny character it's like they they do find their moments where it makes sense for him to be a bit bit silly um i also thought 
those that parking garage was really weird because they had that those big holes in the walls that people were always looking through i was just i've never seen that i have to assume that's like something that is unique to vancouver because i've never seen uh, a parking garage where there's just giant holes in the walls that people can like run through well it might yeah i don't know if i've seen i, I don't occur to me so just a design design yeah. of that particular building it's certainly more aesthetically interesting than just like your standard thing where like half the wall is is where there's like a shorter wall so you can yeah. see through and see the cars and stuff it is it is more interesting to have you know a giant circle in the wall yeah, but yeah it, was, it was just every time they went to that garage and i saw that i thought that's i've never seen that i would i would really like to know if that's like a uniquely canadian thing or even like literally just unique to that parking garage like whoever designed that thought it would be a fun idea yeah, or maybe yeah, maybe they chose that location because it was uni- a unique thing mm. that would work well for whatever for their what they were filming. Yeah, production notes from this episode, which I thought was quite interesting. Apparently, the production of this episode was a little bit of a nightmare. Mm. Um, the director Harry Longstreet, according to uh, James Wong, said that he didn't respect the script and oh. kept uh, giving the actor's direction which didn't fit the tone that they were going for he also did not shoot at least one crucial scene um so in the end uh wong and uh, another director called michael cattleman had to go back and reshoot a bunch of the episode uh, after production had wrapped because there was so much they felt was missing um so i think it's very impressive that the episode holds together as well yeah. as it does but watching it this time with that knowledge I did think that like the scene where Toombs attacks his second victim and it suddenly goes into like juddery slow motion. That was the moment I thought, okay, I I I wonder if this was like one of the things they weren't able to reshoot because it was very clearly like mm. them trying to save the scene in the edit because if mm. they had intended for that to be slow motion it would have been smooth as opposed to just slowing the footage down. With that in mind, I thought, well, wow, it's amazing how well this episode really holds together what what other scenes did they have to reshoot or did they end up being in there in the end because like i the the script that i managed to find on online for this the that version of the script like it seems like a lot of it is in there like there weren't mm. a, too many changes i feel like there's Maybe I need to watch it more closely, but the, the, I think there was one scene that I don't remember seeing at all, which is um, the first victim talking to a cleaner. Mm. Not in there, randomly, but it doesn't lose anything for it not being there, because I think there's dialogue later that kind of fills some gaps. Um, and the only other thing that I noticed was um, right at the very end when... Toombs is in his jail cell, or it's not a jail cell, it would be like a psychiatric unit cell. Yeah. Um, Mulder says something about how people feel they need to put bars on their windows, but with Toombs, it's not enough. Whereas in the script, he says, I was sad when people felt the need to put bars on their windows, but with Toombs, what next? And it was mm. just like, yes, because Tombs, this one-off monster, is a big enough of a threat. So it's just like, I'm glad they changed that line, because that was yeah. not a great line in the script, and there's a much better line um, in in the actual episode. But yeah, I feel like it was, um, you know, there wasn't, there weren't very many changes at, at all, like basically no changes. Yeah, it, it definitely seems to be more just the case that the director, who they did not work with again, so that probably yeah. is, is explains some of that. Because, you know, sometimes they have directors they come back to, like Rob Bowman mm-hmm. and people like that, who, like, you know, come back over and over. Uh, but yeah, uh, Henry uh, Longstreet did not come back. I think it was literally that they just had such a bad time working with him and felt that he did everything he could to yeah, hamstring the episode. Mm. Um, but ultimately... Um, they, I think Chris Carter said that that was an episode that was saved in the edit. So, um, yeah, bloody good kudos, editor. Kudos to yeah everyone who worked really hard to save you know an episode that yeah has gone on to be yeah like we said like one of the most beloved, one of the most important 
episodes in the history of the show, but obviously it came out of a process that was not particularly kind to a lot of the people involved, it seems. I mean, it's. I guess it's tricky as well when you have like a clear vision for something. So either as the writers or in Chris Carter's case, like they're his characters, his show. Like, so if someone's not meeting your expectations or work or actively working against them I, c- I can see why you could be somewhat of a control freak mm. control freak's not the right term because i mean it makes it sound like it's a really bad thing that you want to keep hold of your your vision and you know make it happen to as close to whatever's in your your head as possible well, I think, you know, like, television is such a collaborative medium that yeah. it it really sucks when one of the people doesn't seem to be that interested in collaborating, which seems to have been the case with Henry Longstreet, where he was just kind of, like, based on, you know, like, reports after the fact, I couldn't find any interviews with him in which he gave mm. his side of the story. I'm sure he probably doesn't care. It was just a job for him. Um, it, it, it seemed to be a case that, like, he came in there, didn't really jibe with what they were trying to do and then just kind of did his own thing and no one was happy that that was the approach that he took as opposed to what I think is is what most TV directors do which is they kind of come in and they kind of go okay what do you guys need me to do you 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 know you writers you know what the show is Mm -hmm. you actors know how these characters are going to act you know how can I help make that as good as possible whereas uh, that did not seem to be his approach it seems yeah I mean from what I've heard about the way Chris Carter worked um so like there's an interview with Mark Snow um Mm. on YouTube um and he's talking about the process that they went through to come up with the the show's music and the theme tune um and you know they went through a process of like doing a bunch of variations on one particular idea uh, but and then ultimately going back to the drawing board and blah 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 um theme mm. tune ensued sort of thing but but point being that it sounded as though the way that chris carter handled that was very patiently and you know listening to ideas and things like that so my assumption here isn't that chris carter is a completely unreasonable person based on that i'm sure the more and more i read and watch about things may well you know don't look too close at your uh your heroes or whatever <laughs> mm. as they say but my my current uh thought is that he doesn't sound like a completely unreasonable person yeah from every interview with other people uh whenever they talk about him like it, it does seem like he's just like one of the nicest people to work for yeah um that's which is is nice and it's very funny whenever like you know someone who becomes synonymous for a show that it has like deeply traumatic moments is like just like a super chill normal guy yeah (laughs) um in the same way that like john carpenter now has the reputation for you know obviously did halloween the thing and all these like terrifying movies and then now he's like yeah he's like the stoner granddad who likes to play fallout 76 all day it's just kind of like <laughs> a, a guy who just has a nice time nice time online um you mentioned mark strong there i think the music in this episode is really good and and one of the things that really stands out for me is the um the pizzicato strings that play whenever tombs is up to no good which is the the, the where it's like 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 that that sound um i feel is is a real um feels like something that's been imitated a lot like mm. it's a very distinct way of indicating that something creepy and unhinged is about to happen um I, in particular i always think of it in terms of spaced which would use that as a for comedic effect every time that like um something weird was going on in tim or daisy's head or like they they were kind of having a bit of a moment they would use that music and um i feel like that's something that i hear all the time in the years subsequently where people were like what's an easy way of making a sound that feels really unsettling and they all essentially use some variation on the pizzicato strings from this episode which is um extremely impressive um Mm -hmm. for like an episode of television to have that impact i think 
Yeah, I do always think that the mark of a good soundtrack is where, for the most part, it passes unnoticed, but without mm. it, like, the show loses its feel. Mm, yeah. Uh, the other thing I had in my notes from this episode is um, I legitimately did the, like, Leonardo DiCaprio pointing in... Um, once upon a time in Hollywood thing when I realized that the bit from the intro of Muller and Scully walking through a door comes yeah. from this episode because <laughs> so little of the intro comes from actual stuff that happens in the show that I was like oh right yeah that's that that is actually in the show it's, it's when they find Toombs's nest um yeah. yeah so I was I was far too uh excited by that I think <laughs> watching it this time around <laughs> I think maybe the dude's wibbly wobbly head. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that exactly as it is is in the show, but I feel like the dude's face looks really familiar. Yeah. So like the 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 basic shot that then gets warped and made into that graphic. Um, I think that must be. I I have a feeling that must be somewhere in the show. Um. And then there are the other bits, like I'm sure el- other elements, if we watch closely enough, we might be able to figure that maybe they're not completely random. Mm, yeah, we'll, we'll decipher it by the end of the first season. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then, then they'll change it to screw with us. Yeah. Specifically us. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Well, they do They do change the, the opening credits mm. later on in the series, um, but not screw with us, I don't think. No. Um... But that's my conspiracy theory. This is all of extremely long con, going back thirty years just to mess <laughs> to mess with us recording this show. Um, so time travel does exist, <laughs> and that's how they've chosen to use it. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I thought was quite interesting is that they managed to get in a reference to um, contemporary goings on with. Um, Bosnia, the whole situation in Bosnia, and that because mm. so, like so they're talking to Frank Briggs, who was the the police detective, um, the time before or the time before that. But those murders in Powhatan Mill. When I walked into that room, my heart went cold. My hands numbed. I could feel it. Feel what, Frank? When I first heard about the death camps in 1945, I remembered Powhatan Mill. When I see the Kurds and the Bosnians, that room is there, I tell you. It's like all the horrible acts that humans are capable of. Somehow, gave birth to some kind of human monster. That's why I say I've been waiting for you. And it's just uh, like, oh, they're kind of still managing to say stuff as well as do this like kind of silly monster of the week type stuff. Still making a point about something that's happening. Um... I it's evil it's not good mm. it's not it's not it's not deep <laughs> it's straightforward but I just you know in that I'm looking for stuff that kind of anchors the X-Files to the time it was made and things so that kind of jumped out at me yeah and I think you get that like we mentioned it earlier with the the World Trade Center bombing yeah. being kind of referenced offhand that was obviously something that happened earlier that year I think in like 93 yeah so well, um, see, I, I, I don't know anything about the World Trade bombings. Obviously, in my mind, the only thing that I'm aware mm-hmm. of about the World Trade Center is 9-11. And I, I don't think I'd ever heard of um, bombings or anything earlier than that. Yeah, that yeah. Just double checking the date that happened in the February, uh, and it was a similar situation to what you would see if like uh, the following year with the Oklahoma city bombings, where it was someone driving uh, a truck right. full of explosives or, or um, 
fertilizer into the parking garage of the World Trade Center as it was at the time and detonating it. Obviously not as um, deadly as as 9-11 or indeed the Oklahoma City bombing. But um, that was a real kind of like... That's one of those moments if you're talking about the as as i think we talked about in an earlier episode the rise in sort of anti-government sentiment mm. that's really prevalent in the 90s the growth of the militia movement uh the general like distrust of um governments worldwide and particularly the u.s government um manifesting in a series of like uh attacks of a similar nature that happened throughout the 90s so yeah mm. that's but i i do think it's interesting that the show is is referencing and reflecting the contemporary reality uh in a way that is is really interesting to think of because i feel like a lot of shows nowadays particularly ones that are like you know a big network show that's a procedural or things like that they probably wouldn't want to try and reference too much real world stuff because, you know, there's that idea that art's meant to be escapist or whatever, or just the mm. sense that maybe you're going to start alienating people if yeah. you start different referencing too many real life things that are happening and, and kind of move away from the, the fantastical stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it is interesting whenever they kind of reflect the stuff that's actually happening in, in the broader world. Uh, it does like you say it grounds it it does make it feel more authentic i think that they are reflecting this is definitely happening in the world that we know it but kind of off to the side in the dark corners of the world so frank briggs is saying this um i don't i don't think to literally explain where a monster like tombs comes from though it's sort of is inviting you to think that that's the kind of origin story of tombs. Um, you know, there was just this evil in the world that culminated in the creation of this murderous, stretchy, long-lived serial killer. Um, but I do, I sort of, I would love to have been in the kind of writer's room when they were playing around with this idea of like trying to explain where tombs came from like how did he come to be and i'm glad that in the end you know this character says this i think more of a kind of reflection of the evil that is tombs but not actually his kind of like origin story um mm. but i'm i'm glad that they steered away from like including anything of like that kind of explanation like he just is like yeah. We don't know if he comes from a long line of stretchy long-lived serial killers mm-hmm. or or whether he has just come he's just like he's he's got some genetic well, they they mention he has some sort of I think genetic or they're doing genetic tests I don't think they'd got the results at that point. Anyway. Yeah, he has like a deficiency or something, right? Like that that's what the liver provides him with essentially. Yeah, and they say he's got some um, anatomical abnormalities. Mm. See, these days, if they wanted to do a genetic test, they'd have the answers back pretty sharpish. They wouldn't have to send off and wait too long for them. Um, But yeah, like, I'm glad we just don't know why, why he's come to be, but he just is evil, I think. Yeah, that's altogether, like, a stronger way to tackle the, the story and the character than to be like really laborious especially you know it gives them a lot of license that because it's an original creation on their mm-hmm. part you know they're not they're not dipping it into some like already pre-established like creature with law they can just basically be like yeah he, he he has these characteristics he does these killings in this specific way for you know reasons that the characters um kind of um infer but they don't necessarily know the answer to because tombs himself may not know the answer like Mm. he's essentially he's essentially a creature of instinct i think that was one of the things that um david duchovny in particular i think he kind of had a he kind of fought um henry longstreet over was that they wanted his approach to tombs to be more judgmental and Mm. his his response was like you know he he doesn't he can't judge him because he doesn't necessarily think that he is like doing this out of malice he's doing this because he kind of has to like that's 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 the way that he exists in the world is he has to go out and kill people and take their livers to survive um Mm -hmm. which i thought was an interesting uh insight into how duchovny views the character and i think the right one 
like that's that's one of the things that's really interesting about Mulder as a person is that he's fascinating and he he's legitimately like fascinated and curious about all of these strange phenomena and is mm-hmm. not necessarily like judgmental about any of it which would have been the easier way to write him as a character really yeah so all in all an excellent uh episode that lives up i think to its it's not even hype just mm. it is iconic and the fact that i w- the first time i watched it i feel like it was done in the blink of an eye it was just yeah. fantastic absolutely one of the best an already a high watermark for the series uh, which I think it does top a few more times, or yeah. at least a uh, reach. But um, yeah, it, it really is, I think, a sign of how special the collection of writers they had at this point is, that they were, and, and crew and everything, that they were able to hit the ground running so, so fast uh, with this episode. Uh, if you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the podcast, then please uh, like us, subscribe, review... Uh, everywhere that you get podcasts you can also follow us on uh, twitter where we are at the far room pod send us an email at the far room pod at gmail.com uh, if you want to send us your thoughts on this episode or any stretchy elongated people that you've met in real life <laughs> i'd love we'll be... to hear about that yeah um, do you need livers to survive every 30 years and you've happened to uh, wake up at this time to send an email let us know be interesting to find out don't come find us though we don't want to meet you <laughs> but that seems to be bad our theme song is by leon ocasio and we'll be back next time to talk about the episode conduit uh but until then uh, it's goodbye from me bye from me